thank you so much for sharing about those wonderful uh, aha moments. And that actually segues, your, your last response segues into this next portion of the chat, which is how you became an absolute trailblazer and professor of national influence when it comes to environmental justice, climate justice, climate policy. And so first I'll ask you about Calum Viroscreen. From what I understand, Calum Viroscreen is one of the most widely used tools to evaluate environmental health disparities in the state of California. And so for listeners that are new to the work, um, the Cal Enviro Screen tool was adapted by Cal Oiha about 10 years ago, and it was largely derived from Rachel's research lab. So Rachel, can you tell us about the conceptualization of Cal Enviro Screen and the evolution of this tool? Sure. The precursor to Cal Enviro Screen was a project that I had the privilege of working on with um, colleagues at Occidental College, Jim Sad, and USC, Manuel Pastor. And we've been collaborating now for a very long time. But back then, we got money from the California Air Resources Board to take up the challenge of developing a decision-making tool and a mapping tool that could help the Air Resources Board better integrate environmental justice in its thinking and evaluation and regulatory strategies. And at that time, it was, you know, no one was really doing this. Um, now it seems like every there's a new tool coming out all the time. Um, and so we undertook a pretty deliberative process in figuring out how we would develop this tool. We had kind of a scientific advisory board, but then a lot of the money we got was spent engaging uh, EJ partners with whom we had worked previously, but also making sure that we engaged other groups maybe that we hadn't worked directly with. In initially getting feedback, like if, if we were to have like an EJ screening method to guide regulation around air quality. Like, what do you think the types of indicators should be in there? And we got a lot of great ideas. We traveled throughout the state and had a lot of different conversations, meetings, focus groups, stuff like that. And then we started the process of really trying to amass data. And then we set some criteria. We had to set some criteria, like the data had to be publicly available. It had to be data that was regularly updated. Uh, it had to be uh, available across the state. And we started to create sort of what we call buckets of different kinds of indicators. So we had indicators of uh, social vulnerability, mostly census data. We had indicators of potential exposure related to air quality, indicators of, of proximity to hazards if we didn't have like air quality data or exposure data. Then we added a, a climate vulnerability layer related to heat islands and some other social indicators that might, so for example, vehicle ownership, single parent households, things like that. And then a drinking water layer, which I was fortunate enough to work with a former graduate student, Carolina Ballas, on the development of that layer. So we developed environmental justice screening method. And then that was right around the time when um, the there was a huge, a lot of tension between um, environmental justice groups and the California Air Resources Board around implementation of the state's Global Warming Solutions Act, which was passed in 2006. And one of the major tools by which the Air Resources Board was going to implement the law was through the development of a cap and trade program. EJ groups, for a variety of reasons, very 
valid reasons were not happy about this market-based strategy because they felt like it could potentially amplify inequities in air pollution regulation and also forego potentially important health co-benefits if you just left it all to the market and very geographically agnostic kind of regulatory strategy of air quality and uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So they tried to overturn uh, the cap and trade program through a lawsuit and uh, lost lost that case. The Air Resources Board currently has a cap and trade program that has been in place now for several years. But several groups realized, okay, industry now has, even if it's a cap and trade program, they have to pay for something that they used to be able to do for free. For every ton of greenhouse gas they emit, they have to have purchase and allowance. And that money goes to the state's general fund. So several groups came together and worked to pass legislation SB 535, the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, which mandated that 35% of funding uh, for uh, climate change adaptation and mitigation uh, had to benefit uh, so-called disadvantaged communities. And 25% of that money had to be invested in those communities directly. So initially, some of the groups that were working on this legislation said, we want to write in the legislation that they have to use your environmental justice screening method to identify the communities for these investments. And I was like, no, <laughs> I can't feed this monster in perpetuity. This is something that Cal EPA has to do, but we will help. <laughs> so the legislation was passed and that created a demand on the part of Cal EPA and Cal EPA's Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment, OEHA, which is the science arm of Cal EPA, to develop a screening tool for the implementation of that legislation. We, we work very closely with them to like share our data and show our methods. And they took it on. They also undertook a very deliberative process. They made some different decisions about how to accumulate and create a create a total score. And but I think you know, the beauty of it is we, the moral of this story, I guess, that I really like is that we came up with an idea, we did a proof of concept through the environmental justice screening method. And then, you know, I think the best thing is when you have a policy opportunity where an agency sort of takes it up and now it's theirs. And that's that's how Cal Screen has come about. It is, as you say, it is used to guide a lot of decision-making in the state, guide a lot of these investments. And it has become a model for uh, Biden's Justice uh, Justice 40 initiative. And this sounds much more smooth and kumbaya than it really was. There was a lot of conflict in that whole process, not not but not not between us and OEHA, but just the whole legislative process. But you know, I think the end result has been a good one. The reason why it has been a good one is because EJ folks have had the vision and really effective statewide organizing and coalition building to make sure they had a seat at the table and to push for accountability on the part of the agencies that were implementing these different forms of legislation and even development of, of Cal Screen. And it still continues. OEHA does a very good job every time they do an update to seek a lot of feedback statewide from diverse EJ stakeholders throughout the state. Wow, wow, wow. Just It's just the chef's kiss science to policy pipeline, trailblazing, having your work implemented at the state level, and as you just alluded to, being adopted as a national strategy 
in the Biden-Harris administration, just how incredible is that legacy? And that's why I named this episode Trailblazing. And so with that, <laughs> the beauty is you create something and then like now everyone's doing it even better, right? That's that's what you want. Um, so New Jersey has their own screening tool and they are amazing because their tool, for example, they're using race as an indicator, which no other tool and no other state and the feds are, have been unwilling to look at racial composition as part of the total score. And they're using it to make decisions about permitting. So movements and decision makers and that those exchanges, you know, build upon like prior examples and it just keeps, you know, the goal is to just keep making it better and better, learn, learn from prior lessons and then, you know, try and try and push the envelope even further. Which takes courage and innovation. Oiha just put up a really nice uh, storyline about Calaviro's screen um, to celebrate its 10th anniversary. So if if people have an opportunity to visit it, because there's a lot of really nice uh, quotations from different folks about sort of what the development of this tool has has meant. And I will link the 10th anniversary page in the description box. And so with that being said, can we segue and perhaps discuss your thoughts around the Cal OEHA, Cal EnviroScreen model being recently adopted as a model for critical infrastructure for the Biden-Harris administration for identifying and eliminating ultimately racial ethnic disparities in environmental health. So can you talk to us about ways in which you think California's model has informed this national policy strategy? So California's model has influenced, for example, New York state strategy, which in turn has influenced the national strategy. Doing things at the federal level is a lot harder. We're very fortunate in California because people like to say we're a bunch of weirdos and we do things different and we're, we're leading and, you know, we're this blue state. And so, you know, what happens in California is, is not always easy to translate to the federal level in part because of the the broader context, the messier politics, but we are the fifth largest economy in the world. So people can't ignore us either, <laughs> uh, no matter how weird they think we are. And so I think Biden was able to thread the needle, at least, you know, in those first two years and the people that came to work with him and really sort of push things forward to come up with a strategy to do it because there there was a pretty decent blueprint out there with California and New York and other states. And there's unprecedented opportunities with these investments to make some transformative investments. I think the biggest challenge right now is that there is a ton of money out there and they are trying to get it out the door as fast as they can. And the goal is to get it to the communities that need it and to make sure that the community organizations that represent the community have opportunities to access those funds. And that's that's hard because if anyone knows, you know, administering any kind of federal contractor grant is kind of a nightmare and you need organizational capacity to really do that. The Council on Environmental Quality, EPA and other organizations uh, and other agencies that are starting to invest that money have also invested in planning grants to help build capacity for smaller groups to access these funds for projects that they want to do. The foundations, so private foundations, have also started to invest in capacity building uh, for communities to access these funds to give them the ability to apply for 
secure and manage those grants. But we will see uh, whether the money gets to the intended audiences, if you will. There's a lot of work being done to try and make sure that happens. Uh, There's not a lot lot of time. (laughs) The election's coming up and everyone's going to get very distracted. Um, But there's a lot of really dedicated people right now working within agencies who really care about trying to make this happen and have stuck it out. Like they haven't just been there for two years and leaving. They're still there despite, you know, some of the major challenges that go on and the, and the huge bureaucratic roadblocks that can gum some of these things up and they're still there. So I'm optimistic. Even when it turns out well, it's still always messy. It's like how our climate change policy happened. It's it's always, it's going to be contentious. It's not easy. There's a lot of often sausage making in the, in that process, but, you know, it's still worth doing because, you know, doing nothing is not an alternative. <laughs> so. And so building on what you just talked about in terms of the national strategy, I kind of want to drill down into your time on the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. So you joined WeJack in 2021. And I just, would like to ask, how do you think your your research career has informed your service on the committee? Mm-hmm. And overall, what are your thoughts on the committee's effectiveness? Yeah, great question. The we, so-called WeJack is mostly comprised actually of representatives of different communities and constituencies, uh, EJ communities across the country. And then there's some academics like me and and some others on there, but we're in the minority, which I think is really good. So I have focused a lot on working with some really great folks in the climate and economic justice screening tool work group to really try and make it a good tool. Working with OEHA and developing CalEnviro Screen was actually really a, a very satisfying experience. This has been harder. And, you know, when they came out with the first, you know, the beta version, which they sought public comment on, there were a lot of issues with it. And we were able to, I think, really influence and improve the version 1.0 that came out. You can see on the WeJack website, the letter that we wrote to sort of outlining a lot of the things that we thought they needed to do. And they listened, they, they adopted a lot. I think one of the biggest contentions was the decision not to include race in the designation of a disadvantaged community. And it's similar to the fears of in, well, in California, we have a law that explicitly forbids that, uh, Proposition 209, where it is illegal to out the uh, do the allocation of any resources on the basis of race. At the federal level, there was a lot of concern by the lawyers at the Council for Environmental Quality, which coordinates a lot of the environmental work in the executive branch, that if they did that, lawsuits galore would be filed and we can see the makeup of the Supreme Court and it would basically derail the whole J40 initiative and strategy. So there's been a lot of news coverage of that. And, you know, we have pushed back. And basically saying, you know, you make this decision, but that decision will have consequences because you can try different kinds of variables that hopefully also address racial disparities. But if you don't directly address the racial issue with your indicators, it's not going to be optimal or efficient. 
So we're still having that conversation. The compromise was to include race as an informational variable, but not in the scoring part. So if you go on the website, you can get information on the racial makeup of the different census tracts and which ones are disadvantaged and which ones are not. We did get them to include an indicator of historical redlining, but that is very imperfect because, you know, that was a something that happened in the 1930s in most parts of the United States where people live or even in existence back then and so weren't mapped. And I think the other ways that we have been effective last month, Biden signed a revised executive order on environmental justice. And so many people worked really hard on that. And it has just a lot more meat and provides an important framework from which to continue building and integrating EJ and everything that the federal government does in a, in a way that the first executive order was a milestone back then, but now it's just so much better. And it really reflects the hard work of many members of the WEJAC who, who worked a lot on that process. You know, you spend a lot of time in meetings and, you know, the problem is sometimes the Council on Environmental Quality staff are not as forthcoming as you would like them to be about sort of what's going on, which makes it difficult to give feedback. And a lot of that is motivated by, you know, fear of political repercussions if things get leaked and come out. And then I'm learning a lot about government bureaucracy that I was very naive about and still am, but I'm I'm learning. It's a lot of on-the-job training about government bureaucracies and how they work or don't work as the case may be. And you want to be nice to the people who are in those agencies, even though it can be very frustrating because I knew those people, many of those people before they went to work for the administration. So I know they're there for good reasons and I know they're trying to do the good thing, the best, best thing, but they are working within constraints. You're working within a system. I mean, I've talked to friends who are in high places there and many of them, you know, consider themselves revolutionaries and they're trying this strategy of being inside the system. It's very hard on them, but they, they're very dedicated to seeing it through. Wow. Just just there's so much here working within the system as a a revolutionary learning on the job but I feel like what I can say is that the people that I've seen on WeJag that have been appointed to the Biden and Harris administration they are the leaders that have been on the ground during the work for the last like 15 or 20 years right yeah and now they're sparring with really good friends and colleagues who sit on the WeJag it's really fascinating, you know, when you go to these public meetings, some of those people used to work together and you still have a relationship with those people. And our role is to push and their role is to make sure we don't push so hard that we overturn the apple cart. And therein lies the uh, tension. <laughs> I prefer to be in the pushing part. You really need people who know how government bureaucracies work. I mean, there's so many great dedicated people that go work for government and they just get eaten alive because they don't know how to work within a bureaucracy. And it's just not the same as being, you know, we have the privilege, we're at a university, we're at Berkeley, we can like say and do what we want. We, you know, and that's just not how those bureaucracies work. It's not that you're letting them off the hook, but it, it's a certain kind of skill and ability and not everybody has it. Not every well-intentioned, super duper smart person can work effectively within a bureaucracy to make social change. And so to some extent, even if you disagree with them, you got to support the people who are good at it. And I think that is really food for thought for those of us that are coming up the pipeline, trying to make a difference and trying to figure out where we 
stand along the spectrum of pushing versus working within the system? And I've, I've posed this question to everyone I know in my space, and we don't have an answer until now. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, and just to wrap up kind of this, this wonderful conversation about your career, your impact at both the state, federal, and obviously the academic level, what's on the horizon for you in the next five to 10 years? I don't know. My, uh, my husband keeps telling me I need to answer that question. Um, and I've never been particularly, I mean, so what's, what's in store for me in the next five years? I'm not really sure. I'm, um, starting to take on some more kind of administrative roles at, at Berkeley and, um, in part uh, because I have want to learn a little bit more about how, how the university more broadly works. I've been really trying to push for a lot of structural change like within my department and I've always worked towards that and you know Berkeley is just like this huge behemoth it's very bureaucratic I mean a lot of academic institutions are but Berkeley definitely has its own flavor I've started to do more administrative work which that's a huge trade-off because the more that's a lot of work and then the more you do that the less time you have to do these other things that give you great joy and feed your passion but some of that administrative work can be very satisfying um, because even though you're not out there public doing all this great change stuff, you you know the changes you've made, even though like people on the outside maybe haven't. And I feel like I'm at a, I'm a little more mature in my head. Like if I feel like I'm doing the right thing, that's good. That's good enough, you know. Uh, but it is a hard choice because the more, the higher up the food chain you go, then um, the less time you have to do science. And I still really love science. I'm not ready or willing to walk away from it to, you know, go be a campus administrator right now. But I'm willing to do kind of more servicey kind of things. And I'm supposed to do that more in my stage in the career. So, and the other thing is, um, you know, just continuing to um, mentor and collaborate with early career stage folks who are coming up. I feel like I didn't learn to become a good mentor until I went to Brown and had two amazing mentors who t taught me what it was to be a mentor just by watching them do it. And that is uh, a colleague named Lundy Braun, who is in the medical school in the Department of Pathology and moved from being a scientist to actually being a science and technology scholar. And um, she's in, now in Africana studies and does really great work on racialized medicine and environmental health. Uh, and another colleague, an environmental sociologist named uh, Phil Brown, who was the one who recruited me. So those two people really taught me a lot about what it means to be a good mentor, particularly for early career stage people. How you create an intellectual community that is rigorous, but safe in the sense that people are comfortable sharing weird, you know, data output or crappy first drafts of manuscripts and are, are willing to share that stuff in the spirit of people reading them and giving you advice on how you're going to make it better and teaching people that you become a better scientist, not by yourself, you know, just pounding your head against the wall but you actually, you share your crap and then people tell you how to make it better. That everything starts out as crap, you know, 
Um, so I share, you know, I try and share bad first drafts of manuscripts. You know, people say, I love that paper you wrote. And I'm like, well, here, you can see how this started. I try and share harsh grant reviews and rejections with early career stage people so that people, I think the worst thing that happens at that stage in your career, you know, because rejection is such a big part of science and academia, but people at that stage in their career, I think per personalize it and they think that it means that their work is not good or not worthy. And so I think rather than just people seeing you as like a, somebody who's very successful, people need to see you as somebody who's failed a lot. And that's still, you know, like I still share crappy first drafts because people need to know that's how you do it. And also showing that science is a team sport. Um, great science, it happens through great collaborations. You can't do it all yourself. And so, some of the best work I've done is with amazing collaborators and could have never done that work by myself, ever. Join us for part three of episode 14, Trailblazer with Professor Rachel Morello-Frosch.